So one of the things we've been learning from Nehemiah, as well as other portions of Scripture, and even from a life experience, is that the nature of us as people is one that we resent when somebody else tells us what we need to do. And even when we're caught doing something wrong, we'll make excuses for it. We just don't want to admit it. But that starts early. We don't have to grow into that. It starts from when we're very small. I remember hearing a story about a young boy, and he was checking out this place. He was watching with great interest and intrigue a blacksmith that was pounding out some horseshoes that was shaping these horseshoes. And if you've ever seen that on television or real, you know that they'll take a piece of metal and they get it red hot, and then they start pounding on it with a hammer to shape it, and then they dip it into water, and then they take it out and they heat it again, and it's a whole process. But even though they've dipped it in water and steam comes up and they put it on a rack or perhaps an anvil to cool, it is still hot. Well, this kid was watching the blacksmith with great interest and he, the blacksmith noticed he starts edging his way over to that anvil and he's eyeing those horseshoes that are hanging there. And he said, son, I wouldn't touch those if I were you. They're hot. They'll burn you. He said, mm, Okay. So he moves a little bit away and the guy continues to pound these out and has another horseshoe up there. And he notices that the kid's getting closer and closer to it like he's not seeing this. And he watches him reach up and grab one of those horseshoes. You know what happened next, right? He threw it down and he stuck his thumb in his mouth like, and the blacksmith said, mm-hmm, I told you, it burned you, didn't it? He went, no, it just didn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. <laughs> That's the way some of us act is that even when our wrong is pointed out, we'll make excuses for it. We'll trivialize it somehow. And we see that in the nature of people. That's one of the reasons why God has given parents to children is because we need to help provide them with direction. If we love our children, we're going to provide direction. If we love our children, we're going to provide discipline when they go astray. It's for their good. It's to help them. But it also is a reflection on the parents. If you see a child that's acting out in a very disrespectful or loud or boisterous way, and, and they're just not just being childishly irresponsible, they're really demonstrating out in ways that are unbecoming, shall we say. It's not only a reflection on the child, it is also a reflection on the parents, right? You think, well, they need to get that kid under control. They, need, they don't discipline their child. They, they, they. It's a negative reflection on the parents. Well, in the same way, God, as a loving heavenly father, has provided with us direction for life. And when we choose to go against his direction, he also provides discipline. Not because he's some cosmic killjoy, not because he's trying to get his kicks out of making life miserable for us. He wants to give us directions because it's healthy for us. It's positive. And when we follow that direction, when we make wise choices, it's also honoring to God. When we disobey those choices, it's not only unhealthy for us, it's dishonoring to God, who's our Heavenly Father, and who we say we're created in His image. Well, throughout Nehemiah, we begin to see that, but I was just reminded on Friday night as I was officiating, had the privilege of doing that over a Messianic Passover Seder dinner. If you don't know what that is, basically it is where uh, individuals, and this was with the Christian Jew Foundation with Vi Berger, who's one of our missionaries, had the privilege of doing this for over 20 years with her husband Barry till he is now in the presence of his Messiah. And it's seeing how Jesus is represented in the Passover meal that has been celebrated ever since the Exodus by the Jewish people. And so one of the things that I was doing, I don't normally dress this way, but this is called a talit. 
Okay, it's basically a prayer shawl. And so in, in officiating, you're wearing this. Some people want me to wear it like that, and that is a way to do it. But it's basically a shawl. You put it here, and uh, you take it, and you pull it over your shoulders. And this is a part of a reminder of the, you're clothed in the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. And these tassels that are on the end of it are not just there for decoration. These tassels, there's 613 of them. That's because in the Tanakh, in the Older Testament, there are 613 laws that God gave to his people. Some of prohibition, don't do this, and some things that are saying prescribed, do this. I know many of us think, how many laws are there in the Old Testament? Ten, because of the Ten Commandments, right? Wrong, 613. I, I, I don't know about, yeah, I do know about you too. I can't keep 10, how about you? 613, give it a rest. Are you serious? And that's why Jesus sort of summarized it even more for us when he says, look, there's really two. All 613 hang on these two. Love God, love one another. Wow. That's a masterful summary. Love God, love one another. But it's called every law that's there is in one form or another showing honor to God or showing respect and honor and love to other people who are created in his image. So the beauty of all of this is, and this is a misunderstanding a lot of times when we talk about the law, the Mosaic law, which was given at Mount Sinai, the law was never given for a person to keep all these laws to become good enough to be accepted by God. That's a misunderstanding. The law was given, it tells us in the Newer Testament, to show us our inability to keep the law. And therefore, we need a Savior. We need someone who did keep all of these. Perfectly. You see, even in the Older Testament, there were sacrifices in place for when people, not if, when they would fail to keep the law. And the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, which we celebrate at this time of year with Good Friday, which precedes his resurrection, is about how he nailed that to the cross. So when we say this, and this is a very important phrase for you to understand because of what I'm going to be talking about later. I'm talking about the Mosaic law that these people were under. They were under obligation to keep that law. It is not to say that you and I, as Christ followers, as followers of Jesus, are under obligation to keep the points of the law. You understand when I say we're not under law, we're under grace, it is that we're bathed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are not under obligation to keep the law. Now, having said all of that, and I'm going to keep this here as a reminder for you and for me of just how many laws there are out there. And we're going to look at three. Now, there were 613. The Ten Commandments are ten. Basically, there are three that we're going to look at in Nehemiah that these individuals wrote a contract that they would obey. And we're going to find they didn't do that very well either just like you and I probably wouldn't have as well. So we oftentimes think about Nehemiah as one who came back, if you're a historian and you look at, he rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, and that was his primary focus. But he was also working in concert with other prophets, prophets by the name of Zerubbabel, who built the temple even before Nehemiah got there. Prophets like Ezra, who went to reestablish the law and to promote social 
and moral reform as well as religious reform in the land. And Nehemiah comes in then as the governor and he is also overseeing this. So it's more than just rebuilding a wall that's broken down, it's rebuilding a faith that's also been broken down among the people. So Nehemiah comes along and we see in the end of chapter nine that he has them sign a written covenant to be sure that they're clear on what the expectations are. And we're gonna throw a lot of verses onto the screen if you're following along your Bible, look it up there, mark it. If you, if you see it on the screen, that's fine. And we're going to throw a lot at you. I, mostly, I want you to know I'm not just making this stuff up. It really is in here. And you can see where it's located. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, it says this. Because of all this, meaning all the reform and the need, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document that are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. These are the leaders of the people. So the leaders sign this covenant. They sign this document. We will do these things. We will not do these things. Just a few verses later in Nehemiah 10, verses 28 through 29, it says, The rest of the people join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. Now notice that. We realize they're saying that when we choose to obey God's law, that there's going to be benefit and blessing when we make that wise choice. If we choose the poor choice of disobeying him, then we're going to come under a curse. We're come under his discipline. We will observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So that's a clear delineation that both the leadership and the people are saying, we're signing on the dotted line. We're in. We're all in with you. Now, there's three areas in particular that he's going to focus on. First, in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, they're declaring that Jehovah, Yahweh, will be first in our marriages and family. And it's going to be demonstrating the fact that they will not be marrying foreigners who have different gods and different religious practices. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land, nor take the daughters for our sons. Now hit the pause button with me. Not in your thinking, but in your reading. Why would God have them do that? Understand that God had given a promise to Abram when he took him out of a place called Ur of the Chaldees, actually from the area of Babylon. He took Abram and he said, I will make a great people of you, and you shall be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God has never been for the Jews and against everybody else. Yes, he's for the Jewish people. He's doing a uniquely wonderful work in their midst. But it has always been for all the nations of the world. From the Abrahamic covenant going forward, always been that. But in order to preserve this new nation, he's saying, I don't want you to marry people of the other nations within the land where you're going. Primarily, it was not a racial thing. It was not an ethnic thing, primarily. It was spiritual and religious because every one of those nations had their own gods, their own deities. They didn't worship Yahweh. And he knew that the divided house could not stand. So he's saying, look, make a decision based upon the spiritual foundation, not based upon what this person looks like, not based upon how they can help my business, not based upon how they can help my political standing. Make a decision that's founded on spiritual reasons. So that's what was being said. Secondly, 
they promised that Jehovah would be first in their work, that they would not be working on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday for them from Friday night, 6 p.m. or sundown, to Saturday night at about the same time. So, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31, If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. They sign on the dotted line. We're going to honor the Sabbath day, which is a part of the Ten Commandments. God says, you know, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is good for you. It's healthy for you, and it's also honoring to me. And they said, we'll do that. We'll work six days. That's great. We'll work hard for six days, but we're going to take a break. On the Sabbath, we're going to, as they say, come apart so you don't come apart. We're going to focus. We're going to take a rest. We're going to say, instead of thinking, if it is to be, it's up to me. And if I make so much in a six-day week, I can make so much more in a seven-day week. Then I will do what God has said, and I'll take a break on the seventh day. I'll understand that ultimately my dependence is on him, not on my ability to provide for myself and my family. That's the principle that's behind this. Third point. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 35 through 37, they said that Jehovah or Yahweh would be the first in their possessions. They would honor him from the first fruits of what they had. Listen to what it says. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and also to bring to the house of our God to the priest who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons. That was not to say they were going to sell their sons. It was saying we will dedicate our sons to the Lord. And then it goes on to say, and of our cattle as is written in the law after the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and oil to the priest in the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites those who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And then a verse that summarizes all of that, which is key for later on, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. Again, this is the third thing that had been commanded of them, and they were under obligation to keep. As followers of Jesus, this side of the cross, we are not, but they were. So when I say not under law, under grace, I hope you understand more what that means. They were under obligation to bring the first tenth of whatever their income was. And understand in their farming community, an agrarian community, that was the first tenth of their grain, the first tenth of their animals, the first tenth of the fruit, the first tenth of anything that they had was set apart and dedicated to the Lord. But it wasn't just 10%. That's where the word tithe comes from. It was more like 22% because it's with tenth of the first amount. And then there are other offerings that were on top of that. So these people were under obligation to honor God in this way. Now, if you're thinking, oh, I'm not doing that, don't squirm. You're not in your law, you're in your grace. But there are some principles that we want to draw from this. They were violating what they had agreed to do. They basically signed a covenant, they signed a commitment, and then they were basically saying, not that they couldn't do it, but that they wouldn't do it, and they weren't doing it. So they're saying, this is what we're going to be about. And those are the three areas. Well, about 14 years, Nehemiah is the governor 
in the land of, in the city of Jerusalem in that area. And they have affected these social, religious, and, and moral reforms and the walls there and worship is going on. And then something happens that we begin to see in chapter 13. And that is in the first part of chapter 13, we see that Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem and he goes back. It says to Babylon, but it's to where the king of Persia was, Artaxerxes. And he's there. Remember, he was the cupbearer. He was like the prime minister. So he goes back, and he's there for a period of time. And it's not a long period of time. It's just a few years. And then Nehemiah says, well, I want to go back and see how they're doing. Well, that's where chapter 13, the last chapter of Nehemiah, picks up. He comes in, and he finds they're not doing so hot. They were violating all three of those areas that they said we will do or we will not do. In Nehemiah chapter 13, we see that they ceased to honor God with the first of their possessions. Nehemiah 13, 10 through 12 says, I found, this is Nehemiah speaking, I found that the portions of the Levites, the leaders in the temple, had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work each had to flee to his field. In other words, they're not able to attend the work in the household of God. They're having to work the fields. I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? You remember what they pledged to do? We will not forsake the house of our Lord. He asked him that direct question. And then I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouses. Now, there's another prophet that I believe was operating in the land at the same time. His name was Malachi. And Malachi addressed this same issue, but he did it with some harsher language. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, in essence, what he says, will a man rob God? You are robbing me. They said, how are we robbing you? And he said, by failing to keep your commitment to bring the tithe into the storehouse. You are dishonoring me, and that's not good for you, and it's not good for the people. It's not even honoring to me. In essence, God says, test me and try me in this matter and see if I will not open the windows of heaven, pour forth a blessing upon you. See, the key issue here is they're not trusting God. The not giving of the finance, the portion that they had dedicated to the Lord, that was the symptom, the real issue, is they weren't trusting him. And that's the real key issue. It's not just key for them, no longer are we are not under the law to give a specific percentage. We are under grace, but that does not mean that there's not a principle that's here. If you read in the Newer Testament, you won't find a specific percentage given, but here's what you will find. You will find that as a follower of Jesus, we should give financially as well as of our time and abilities. It's a matter of stewardship. And we should give proportionate to what God has given to us. Not a necessarily a specific percentage. It's under the understanding that really 100% of it belongs to God. It's not 10% his and the rest mine to do with how I want to. That's a radically different way of looking at this. We should give sacrificially. We should give cheerfully. These are principles throughout the New Testament that say we should give and not forsake the work of God. Now, if you ever come to a membership class, we just had one of those, you'll never hear us say that you have to give a certain percent to be a part of this church because we're not going to say something that we don't see taught in the New Testament. 
Should we give? Yeah, sure. But what you give is between you and God. My wife and I have a conviction that we should practice 10% or more. And by God's grace, seek to do that. But I'm going to legalistically foist that on anybody else. What's your conviction? What's proportional? What's sacrificial? These are the things that should drive us, but we should participate. They stopped honoring God with the first of their possessions. And that's a key thing. We should give the first of what we have, not what's left over, because usually there's way too much month at the end of the paycheck, right? Secondly, they stopped honoring God with their work, and they were not observing the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, 15 through 16 says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grape and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them that when they also sold food, Tyrrhenians, these were people that lived in Tyre, which was on the Mediterranean coast, also lived in the city, and they brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Verses 17 and 18. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not God bring disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Again, what they were doing there is they're saying, okay, I know this is what you've said. I know that's what I agreed to, but I can make more. This is more economically advantageous to me to work that extra day, and you want us to be industrious. Well, the mindset was that they're avoiding the fact that God put this down, and it's a key thing for them to understand and to practice. To take a day apart, you'll actually be more productive in the long run than if you just keep working every day. It's a principle that's there that's also true for us, even though there's no place in the New Testament that says you should honor the Sabbath day. In other words, that's Saturday. We worship on Sunday. But he's saying there's not a particular day, but there should be some time when we gather together for worship. It could be a Wednesday, it could be a Friday, it could be a Saturday, it could be a Sunday. But if we're violating that, then we're doing something that's not healthy for us, even as Christ followers, nor is it honoring to God. And yet in our culture, so many times people say, you know, I, 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 yeah, I attended church, I went to worship once this month, that's okay, I'm good. And we're seeing those that say that they're regular in attending worship with the people of God declining over the last 15, 20, 25 years. Let's not forsake assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. But let's see the benefit, because as we worship together, we begin to understand the, the realities of life. Those things that cause us to be so fearful, now are put into a proper perspective by understanding that we're worshiping the king and creator of the universe, one who even conquered sin and death through the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The God that did that, can he not handle those issues that we're facing in our lives? Of course he can, if we will but believe. But our faith needs to be built up. That's a part of what worship does for us, whether it's through songs or the reading of scripture or fellowshipping with the people of God. Let's not forsake that. Let's honor him 
by setting apart a time to worship him and to honor him. They stopped honoring God with their marriages. They were marrying outside the faith. Here's what it says in 13, 23 through 25. In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Let me stop right here and just repeat. The grace of God is bigger than racial and ethnic divides. And God's plan has always been for the nations. Notice that word Moab. Moab was a land near Israel, and they practiced child sacrifice to the God of Chemosh. They would take an infant and put it on blazing hands of an idol. But do you realize that there is a person from Moab, a woman whose name is Ruth, who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ? And there's an entire book written about Ruth in the Older Testament. God's plan has always been there, but understand that Ruth was a follower of Yahweh, of Jehovah. And half the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give our daughters to, son, to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Understand that the big issue that he goes on, and this is a verse that I'm not going to put on the screen, but it's the next verses. He reminds them that Solomon, the great king of Israel, heart was drawn away from the Lord when he began to marry women who had different religious backgrounds. And they brought their worship, and they drew his heart away from the Lord. That's the key issue here, is the spiritual dilution of what God is seeking to do within his people. So Nehemiah called the people to return to the Lord as their first love. In Nehemiah 13, 30 through 31, it says, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. This is really the end of the book of Nehemiah. And with Malachi, also a contemporary, there's 400 silent years now until the coming of Jesus, where no prophecy is given. And we see that the fickleness of the people in those days still was continuing 400 years later. On a day that we celebrate the triumphal entry into Jesus, one of the key things that we often draw out of the text and tease out of that is some of the very same people that were proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A week later, we're crying, crucify him, crucify him. Human nature needs to have constant evaluation of our own hearts that we do not succumb to the fickleness or the gravitational pull of our own self-centeredness. We need to keep Christ center in our lives, keep him focused. Even though we're not under law, as I said before, we're under grace, it doesn't mean that there's no obligations for us to live differently. Matter of fact, we are under obligation to live differently. Jesus said this in John chapter 14 and other places. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You want to demonstrate your love? Then obey what I've told you to do. It's not in order to become right with me, but because you are. Jesus also said this, and it's recorded in the book of Revelation. But understand the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. In chapter 2, verse 4. He says to the church in Ephesus, you are doing a great job. You are doctrinally sound. You have done many good works, but this I have against you. You have left your first love. The good things that you're doing are not properly motivated. They're not motivated out of love for me. 
or for others. You've left your first love. He gives them a threefold, like Nehemiah provides leadership for his people, he gives them a threefold way to return. One, remember from where you've fallen. On Friday night, we have a Good Friday service, and the purpose of any time we celebrate the Lord's table, and especially on Good Friday, is to remember. To remember what God has done for us. And so anything we do for him is simply in response of gratitude and thanksgiving. Come, remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Secondly, repent. It says in Revelation 2, then turn. Turn away from those things that draw you away from me, whatever they may be, and in so doing, turn to me. And let me fill your heart, fill your soul. Trust me and obey me. And then repeat the things that you did at the first. That's a great pattern to come back. You know, throughout history, there are many stories and many uh, recordings of revivals that have happened in the UK and the United Kingdom and in the US. And it's a marvelous study to look at, at those different ones. It was said that there not only was a religious reform where people would come to faith in Jesus, but the social and moral fabric would be changed. For instance, in Wales, they were talking in terms of how different things happened where brothels were closed, where there was less instances of public drunkenness, where even in the Welsh um, coal miners, it was said that the donkeys and the mules that they used couldn't understand their language because it had been so cleaned up by expression to the gospel. Think about that one for a while. They didn't understand the commands because there was not near as much profanity in, laced with it. Patrick Morley, who wrote The Man in the Mirror, describes in Jonathan Edwards, a Massachusetts church in 1734, said this of Edwards, and this was a description of what happened. It pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy and the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. And Morley goes on to talk about it, said, could it happen again? It seems like there's been revivals in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and what about the 2000s? What might God want to do? And Morley makes this statement, which I found provocative. He said, Christianity today in the U.S. is prevalent but not powerful. The solution is spiritual revival and awakening. Well, what's the root of that? The root of that is for each of us. In one of those revivals, Dwight L. Moody was conducting in 1886. There was a music leader there, Ira Sankey, who in his biography wrote about something that happened at one of those events, and he said this, Mr. Moody was conducting a series of meetings in Brockton, Massachusetts, and I had the pleasure of singing for him there. One night, a young man rose in testimony meeting and said, I'm not quite sure what this means, but I'm going to trust, and I'm going to obey. Sankey said, I just jotted that sentence down and sent it with a little story to the Reverend J.H. Samus, who was a Presbyterian minister, and he wrote this hymn, and the tune was born. Some of you may be familiar with it, even if you're not. If it's the first time, listen to these words, because they so summarize this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. 
While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Will you trust him? As a result of that trust, whatever it is, wherever he leads you, will you obey him in the truth that he said? It'll be healthy and whole for you and honoring for God. Father, I pray that the truth of your word would become increasingly aware in our experience. I pray that your spirit will take your word and use it to transform our lives in such a way that we will truly enjoy our walk with you. You will bring joy to us and it will also be healthy for us and for others and honoring to you. Father, thank you for your power. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the way that you will do this. We pray that you will do this good work and that you will finish what you've started. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.